Welcome to the Million Pound Biller Coffee Break Podcast. These are short podcasts for you to listen to at a coffee break. Developed to give you some quick ideas on how to help you build your desk and business. Now, over to Adrian Mansfield, the Million Pound Biller for today's Coffee Break Podcast. Welcome to the Million Pound Biller Podcast. I'm Adrian Mansfield, and in my 20 plus years in recruitment, I've had a number of million pound years. I've worked in most of the major recruitment markets and in all sales roles within a recruitment agency. I've also run my own company and set up companies both in the UK and in several international locations. Recruitment has given me the opportunity to travel the world and see some of the best and worst places on offer, from Australia to Afghanistan and many more in between. The Million Pound Biller podcast offers those at any level in recruitment tips and ideas from me and my contacts, both inside and outside recruitment, but all from the coalface. Information and ideas that can be taken back to your day-to-day careers and put you on the path to a million pound year. The cornerstone of my success over the years has been my willingness to learn and develop my skills, something I still do every day. Now I'm offering you some of my ideas and thoughts that will later squeeze the most out of your recruitment career, no matter what level you're at and where you're aiming for. Every journey, even one to a million pounds, starts with a single step. So let's take that first step together. Welcome to episode 31 of the Million Pound Biller podcast. I've just returned from my first two-week leave in over five years. I've had breaks in that period, but not two weeks concurrently, and I have to say I really enjoyed the time away. I worked hard to take advice on how to go and then come back and avoid the holiday blues on my first week back, something I'm sure all of us have experienced in the past. In this week's podcast, I'll share my ideas and would welcome your ideas via social media. On that front, the two weeks off weren't fully switched off. I've done a great deal of thinking in relation to our social media. And whilst I know I've been saying this for a while, stand by for some big things on that front in the coming weeks. In other news, I, like many recruitment consultants, spend a great deal of time on LinkedIn, either sourcing candidates or leads to clients, but I'm becoming increasingly frustrated by the level of poor sales contacts I get from people trying to sell to me on LinkedIn. I seem to get at least one such cold email a day, and in every single case, the person links to me and then immediately sends a note to sell their service and product. Now, I know it's automated. I know people are using an automated system, but it just doesn't seem to want to work properly. But the best bit about this is I can bottle that feeling, the feeling I get when I get one of those dodgy emails, and put it into practice when I'm using LinkedIn to make sure my contacts are much more professional. For me, it's quite simple. If you wouldn't walk up to a client and sell to them in an open room, then don't do it on LinkedIn. You build a relationship by understanding what they're working on, what their issues are, and then, and only then, do you suggest a solution from your toolbox. But to walk up to a client at a show and say, hey, I'm Adrian Mansfield, and then immediately after they say hi back, you go into a full-on sales pitch. That's never going to work. So why would it work on LinkedIn? Whilst I'm on it, please, please, please never use the phrase, I've researched your business, and then sell or pitch a solution that has absolutely nothing to do with the person you're pitching to. This may be self-evident, but I've had three this week. One from a software company in South America who wants to sell me software solutions Despite the fact I don't work in software, I've never delivered a software solution ever, and my profile definitely doesn't look like a software purchaser. Absolutely research the business and then use that to pitch a valid solution based on your real needs or the client's real needs. Well, I've said these are all very basic ideas, but the fact is they've got my backup in just two days coming back to work, and if you can avoid them, it makes LinkedIn a really beneficial tool for you. But on to topic one for this week, my tips on how to avoid the holiday blues on return. Like many of you, I'm sure, I struggle to fully switch off when I go on leave, and I tend to arrive on holiday stressed as I work flat out to carve a break, and then partway through the holiday I start to amp back up so that I'm ready to go when I get back to work. Despite, or perhaps because of this, 
I've always ended up with a big holiday dip when I get back to work. The holiday and any respective benefits of stressless feelings are usually gone within a couple of hours of getting back to my desk, and the holiday is a distant memory by the second day back at work. So this time, given the busy last 18 months and the fact it was my longest break for such a long period, plus the fact I've got a special once-in-a-lifetime two-week break booked in 2022 already, I tried to do some work this year to be better set before I went on leave and to allow me to hit the ground running when I came back. This year was a great chance to test the models and get ready for next year when I will really want to switch off and won't want to be looking at my phone so we're really ready to go when I get going. So after a great deal of reading around the subject and asking others here and there about their return to work trips, all of which I've tried to put into practice over the few weeks, both before I went and this week on return, here are my three top tips to going away and coming back better. Number one, start before you go. Many things like planning and preparation in advance can save time and efforts at the back end. In my case, I spent a great deal of time the week before I went looking at my actions and key tasks. Then I delegated and handed over all I could before I went and gave direct actions for all items I needed to be worked on. These actions included all the key information, contacts and any history so that whoever was tasked could pick up the action without my input. I then shared the information with the relevant parties well before I left for my holiday and had a meeting with each person to ensure that they had all their questions answered and any queries resolved. As such, I was sure each person was aware of what they needed to do, by when and the history on the issue. Linked to this, I also had notes for myself to ask on return so that I could pick up any actions quickly when I got back. This also included areas that weren't specific tasks. So, for example, questions on some clients who may have called in or contacted the team whilst I was away and to get feedback on what happened with those questions. We all know that things move quickly in recruitment and there can often be things that crop up that were unplanned and I wanted to make sure I picked up these things and any issues that were following based on those specific actions. These questions, alongside a review of the actions I actually set, meant I was quickly able to get back up to speed and was aware of any key issues that needed my immediate input, and then I could set aside time in the first week to reconnect with any key people and to pick up on any immediate actions, safe in the knowledge that I was fully briefed. Point two, plan your first week well. I was lucky, my holiday finished on Saturday, so I had a couple of days of return to normal to get back into the swing of not being on holiday before I started back at work. However, I'm sure you could do this if you come back late Sunday or even Saturday if you listen to this in the GCC or anywhere else where the week is different. You would just need to set aside an hour first thing on the Monday morning or Sunday morning to do the task. In my case, I spent a couple of hours on Sunday night going over emails and setting up meetings in my diary for the first week. These were meetings with me were set for key tasks that I needed to do in the first week. Not meetings with other people, but meetings that allowed me to fit time in the diary for my tasks. I'm well aware on return from leave that the to-do list can often be huge. Just looking at that list can cause any relaxing feelings from your holidays to disappear. So on my targets and items for the week, I had a number of things to get sorted and things to follow up on, and I set aside diary time for each of them. If you set aside time for each task, it makes it much easier to deal with, and you can be sure that you've dealt with all of them. It's also easy to miss some tasks in the long list. But in my experience, if you break it apart and set aside times for each thing, you'll get them all done. Number three, keep the feelings as long as possible. You go on holiday to relax and unwind from pressures and strains. Try not to undo all that good work in the first week back. Some of that will have helped by tips one and two, but also picked up a really great feeling tip as well. Try to retain some part of your holiday into your working week. For me, it will be wearing flip-flops while sat at home working. The feel of my feet in what I consider to be a holiday shoe brings me back to the feeling of being on the beach and allows me to tap back into those holiday feel-good vibes when I'm working hard. I've also heard another great tip since I started putting these on social media this week. If you're a business leader, 
you need to think of holidays in a different light. Any business that's going to be a long-term sustainable needs to be able to run without a single point of failure. You don't want to test that by anything serious such as a long spell in hospital or something completely off the grid. So instead, see a holiday as the perfect option to test it by way of a soft test. After all, you're still contactable for really emergencies, but by setting up the processes above and seeing how your team deal with your absence, you'll get a great view of how well your company is able to avoid single point failure. It also allows you to see how your key staff step up to deal with the day-to-day. Who knows, you may get a surprise and may be able to plan much more holidays in future. After all, if you're the boss, that's got to be one of the key perks. I would also note that I didn't fully switch off from work on leave, but rather put my day-to-day brain on park and let my long-term business brain loose. I actively used the time to strategize and think about me, the business and future goals. So often we lack the bandwidth to do this when we're dealing with the day-to-day. And I've always found a holiday a great time to get away and allow those deep thoughts to develop. Believe me, there's nothing stopping you thinking about the business whilst riding a roller coaster or playing beach cricket, and the views are far better than any office. I shall be putting all of these into practice next year when my holiday memory will be a large pair of Mickey ears. On to topic two for this week. It's market madness. I noted for my holiday and before the levels of activity in the market. It seems that everyone is recruiting and everyone is struggling. Even many of the recruitment consultancies I work with and support are chasing new staff and they simply can't get the people they want or those who are on the market are looking for far higher salaries than they're normally on offer. Now this is great news for the economy at a macro level as one would assume that the levels of people in work will show a growth in GDP over the next couple of months and we can only hope that this can help to put behind us the COVID issues. All that being said, this has led to a very strange position for us as recruitment consultants. It leads to clients who think that the market is awash with candidates as they have seen all the doom and gloom over the last 12 months and the number of people out of work going up and up, but put two and two together and make five. In that they assume that the key person they want to hire, who was impossible to find before COVID, is now just sitting at home waiting for a call. Whereas we as consultants know full well that those roles that were tough to find before COVID are now even harder to source, given the perfect storm of an uncertain future, as we're still not out of COVID, and the busy market which means that even those tough-to-find candidates have either dug in where they are or they're touting for huge salaries that they know they're in demand. As with any market issues, this won't last, but whilst it does, we need to be even more clinical with our consultancy to our clients. We need to be even more focused on our markets and the trends and have the information and data at our fingertips to go over with our clients. The only way to get through these issues is to educate the client and show proof. I would also caution my clients on trying to chase the salary market Sure, if the trend was up before COVID, then the trend will probably be up now. But if your market was X level before and steady, then I suspect a return to mean in due course. And you don't want to be the agent who placed a whole heap of overly expensive staff with a client only to find they're now well over market prices. There is nothing that will lose a relationship quicker than a client who feels you've cheated them, even though you haven't. So for the foreseeable future, it will be hard hats on and work with our clients to guide them through the candidate battlefield. Two big areas that cost nothing, but can really improve the client's chances in working for them, as their hiring process and their sales pitch. Let's take the second one first, as this is often the most alien to clients, unless they are in new markets. I'm of the belief that at interview, the client is selling themselves as much as the candidate is. Indeed, in some cases, it needs to be more selling from the client. Still too many clients have the opinion that a candidate needs to do all the selling. But as we know, in tough candidate markets, the choices are large for good people that need to be sold to on the wider benefit of joining that client. These aren't salary necessarily, but the structure, growth plans, basically what the candidate can expect to learn and get from being part of the client's teams. 
I've never met a candidate who didn't respond well to getting a strong, wider package of development support as part of their new role. Of course, as with any sales, the key is that what is being offered needs to be the real position. You never want to be caught with a client who uses a screensaver sale to candidates, i.e. they put up a screen that shows a pretty picture, but when you remove the screensaver, it's a nightmare behind it. That way leads to early departures and loss of fees, especially in a market like this. Coming back to point one, the hiring process. This one is more common to agencies. Too many clients are too slow in making decisions. They seem to want eight to 10 people to meet the person, plus site trips and a whole realm of tests, most of which won't tell them anything about they won't get from an interview. All the time, the strong candidate is meeting other companies. And then, and we've all been there, the client says they finally want the person, and lo and behold, that person has signed with another company. So we're back to the start of the process again. Now, if you're Google or Apple, you can perhaps have eight to 10 levels of hiring decision before they get to actually making a hire. But they get hundreds of people applying to each role. And even then, they're very quick on their process for the key roles. If you're a normal company, you need to focus on the process being tight and ideally fully explain to the candidate at the start. My suggestion to my clients is a maximum of two meetings or interviews, even if one of them is via Teams or Zoom. The first meeting is always a fact finder and it should be a tough weeding out process. You need to be clear if the person is suitable or not, so get anyone in that meeting who needs to have a view. The second meeting is always set at the end of the first stage, and the second step, if you want one, is 80% about selling to the candidate. Get them in, show them around the office, factory, etc. Get them to meet the key people and talk about the future of the plans of the company. Sure, you're asking them questions and getting feel for them at this stage too, and I would always say to my clients, if you're not happy, even at this stage, say no. But say no quickly and say no professionally. But if it is a yes, Move quickly, move cleanly. Make the offer transparent and make sure it matches any details already shared. Of course, as a professional consultant, you will have shared any salary requirements and market knowledge based on their salary expectations. Clients need to be managed in the strongest terms to not try and pull a fast one. We've all had the offer come back at X less than the role was advertised for and less than the person was actually interviewed for even. This is a massive black mark with me for clients, as it would be if the candidate suddenly hiked their expected salary. The point being, any such issue should be resolved well before any offer is made. As I've said, most of this is, I'm sure, second nature to many of you, but in the current market, it's worth repeating, and it's most definitely worth passing to your clients in every meeting you have with them. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, my first one back after holiday, and I look forward to hearing from you on your social media over the next week about your tips coming back off leave. It's been a couple of weeks since my last podcast up, but I hope you can still ask you to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It will help other people find us. And until next week, enjoy the journey.